2 Timothy chapter 4. This is entitled, Last Words. A great person's last words, they're significant. They are a window that helps us to look into a person's heart, or a measure that helps us evaluate the person's life. In this chapter, we have Paul's last words to Timothy and to the church. It's interesting that Paul expressed no regrets as he came to the end. He even forgave those who made his situation so difficult. See 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. More than 17 people are referred to in this chapter, which shows that Paul was a friend maker as well as a soul winner. Though his own days were numbered, Paul thought of others. The apostle gave three final admonitions to Timothy, and he backed each of them up with a reason. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, he said, I charge thee. It should read, I solemnly witness. And this was a serious moment, and Paul wanted Timothy to sense the importance of it. It was serious, not only because Paul was facing death, but even more because both Paul and Timothy would be judged one day, and when one day when Jesus Christ appeared. It would do us all good to occasionally reflect on the fact that one day, one day we will face God and our works will be judged. For one thing, this realization would encourage us to do our work carefully and and to do our work faithfully. It would also deliver us from the fear of man for after all, our final judge is only God or is God. Finally, the realization that God will one day judge our works encourages us to keep going even when we face difficulties. We are serving him not ourselves. Preach the word is the main responsibility that Paul shared in this section. Everything else he said is related to this. The word preach means to quote, to preach like a herald. And in Paul's day, a ruler had a special herald who made announcements to the people. He was commissioned by the ruler to to make his announcements in a loud clear voice so everyone could hear. He was not an ambassador with the privilege of negotiating. He was a messenger with a proclamation to be heard, not only to be heard, but to be heeded. Not to heed the ruler's messenger was serious. To abuse the messenger was even worse. Timothy was to herald God's word with the authority of heaven behind him. The word of God is what both sinners and saints need. It is a pity that many churches have substituted other things for the preaching of the word of God. Things that may be good in their place, but that are bad when they replace the proclamation of the word of God. I've seen what the preaching of the word can do in churches and in individual lives, and I affirm that nothing, absolutely nothing, can take the place of the Word of God. 
Timothy should be diligent and alert to use every opportunity to preach the word, as we should, when it is favorable and even when it is not favorable. It's easy to make excuses when we ought to be making opportunities. Paul himself always found an opportunity. Let me say that again. Paul himself always found an opportunity to share the word. He was probably always looking for an opportunity. Whether it was in the temple courts or on a stormy sea or even in prison. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 11 verse 4, He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. So you know what? Stop making excuses and get to work. Preaching must be marked by three elements. And those elements are conviction, warning, and appeal. Or you might say even reprove, rebuke, and exhort. If there is conviction but no remedy, we add to people's burdens. And if we encourage those who ought to be rebuked, we're assisting them in their sin. Biblical preaching must be balanced. God's speaker must be patient as he preaches the word. He will not always see immediate results. So the, he must be patient with those who oppose his preaching. And above all else, he must preach doctrine. He must not simply tell Bible stories and relate interesting illustrations or read a verse and then forget it. True preaching is the explanation and the application of the Bible doctrine. Anything else is just religious speech making. Paul gave the responsibility, quote, preach the word, 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. And he also gave the reason in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. The time would come, and it has been here for a long time, when most people would not want the, quote, healthy doctrine of the Word of God, but they would have carnal desires for religious novelties. Why? Because of their itching ears. They would accumulate teachers who would satisfy their cravings for things that disagree with God's truth. And the fact that a preacher has a large congregation is not always a sign that he is preaching the truth. In fact, it may be evidence that he is tickling people's itching ears and giving them what they want to hear instead of what they need to hear. It is but a short step from, quote, itching ears to turning one's ears away from the truth. Other people have rejected the, excuse me, once people have eject, rejected the truth, they turn to fables or they turn to myths. The same difference. It's not likely that man-made fables will convict them of sin. It's not likely that it will make them want to repent. The result is a congregation of comfortable, professing Christians listening to a comfortable religious talk that contains no Bible doctrine. These people then become the prey of every false cult because their lives lack a foundation in the Word of God. 
It is a recognized fact that most cultists were formerly members of churches. So note the emphasis on scripture, quote, preach the word with doctrine. They will not endure sound doctrine. They shall turn away their ears from the truth. Verses 2 through 4. This emphasis on sound or healthy doctrine runs through all three of Paul's pastoral epistles. And this emphasis is surely needed today. In verses 5 through 8, make full proof of thy ministry means fulfill whatever God wants you to do. Timothy's ministry would not be exactly like Paul's, but it would be important to the cause of Christ. No God-directed ministry is small or is it unimportant. And in this final chapter, Paul names some co-laborers about whom we know nothing, yet they too had a ministry to fulfill. A young preacher once complained to Charles Spurgeon, that famous British preacher of the 1800s, that he did not have a big, have as big a church as he deserved. How many do you preach to? Spurgeon asked. Oh, about a hundred, the man replied. And solemnly, Spurgeon said, that will be enough to give an account for on the day of judgment. We do, we do not measure the fulfillment of a ministry only on the basis of statistics or on what people see. We realize that faithfulness is important and that God sees the heart. And this was why Timothy had to be sober in all things, as we see in verse 5, and carry on his ministry with seriousness of purpose. A number of times we've met this word sober in these letters of Paul. Timothy was not only a preacher, he was also a soldier. See verses 3 and 4. Who would have to endure afflictions. Verse 5. He had seen Paul go through sufferings on more than one occasion. Most of Timothy's sufferings would come from the religious crowd so to speak, that did not want to hear the truth. It was the, quote, religious crowd that crucified Christ, that persecuted Paul and had him arrested. In verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. And this would remind Timothy that all of his ministry must have soul winning at its heart. And this does not mean that every sermon should be... Um, like a hellfire and brimstone message because the saints need feeding too. They need to be fed healthy food as well as hear messages about hellfire and brimstone. But it does not mean that a preacher, no matter what he is preaching, should keep the lost souls. He should keep the lost souls in mind. This burden for the law should characterize a pastor's private ministry as well. See Acts chapter 20 verses 17 through 21 for a description of a balanced ministry. God has given special men to the church as evangelists, but this does not absolve a pastor from his soul winning responsibility. 
Not every preacher has the same gifts, but every preacher can share the same burden and proclaim the same saving message. A friend of mine went to hear a famous preacher and I asked him, you know what, how, how the message was? How did he like the message? He replied, well, there, there wasn't enough gospel in it to save a flea. Paul gave the reason behind the responsibility in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. He was about to move off the scene and Timothy would have to take his place. And in this beautiful paragraph of personal testimony, you find Paul looking in three different directions. He looked around in verse 6. Paul realized that his time was short. He was on trial in Rome and had been through the first hearing. And then in verse 17, or in verse 17, but Paul knew that the end was near. However, he did not tremble at the prospect of death. The two words offered and departure in verse 6 tell us of his faith and of his confidence. Offered means poured out on the altar as a drink offering. Paul used the same picture in Philippians chapter 2 verses 7 and 8. In effect, Paul was saying, Caesar is not going to kill me. I'm going to give my life as a sacrifice to Jesus Christ. I've been a living sacrifice, serving him since the day I was saved. Now I will complete that sacrifice by laying down my life for him. And the word departure in verse 6 is a beautiful word that has many meanings. It means to hoist, anchor, and to set sail. Paul looked on death as a release from the world, an opportunity to set sail into eternity. The word also means to take down a tent. And this parallels 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, where Paul compared the death of believers to the taking down of a tent or a tabernacle. In order to receive a permanent glorified body, meaning house not made with hands, a glorified body, not a mansion in heaven, Departure also has the meaning of loosing a prisoner. Paul was facing release, not execution. Thy unyoking of an ox is another meaning of this word. Paul had been in hard service for many years, and now his master would unyoke him and promote him to higher service. Paul looked back in verse 7. He summed up his life and his ministry. Two of the images here are athletic, like a determined wrestler or boxer. He had fought a good fight, and like a runner, he had finished his lifelong race victoriously. He had kept the rules, and he had deserved a prize. See Acts 20. See Philippians 3 also. The third image is that of a steward who had faithfully guarded his boss's deposit. Paul said, I have kept the faith in verse 7. Paul used this image often in his pastoral letters. It, It is heartening to be able to look back and have no regrets. Paul was not always popular, nor was he usually comfortable, but he remained faithful. That is what we really counted 
excuse me, that is what really counted, not what we really counted. Paul looked ahead in verse 8. A Greek or Roman athlete who was a winner was rewarded by the crowds and usually got a, a laurel wreath or a garland of oak leaves. The word for crown is Stephanos, the victor's crown. We get our name, Stephen, quote Stephen, from the word, or from this word, um, Stephanos. However, Paul would not be given a fading crown of leaves. His would be a crown of righteousness that would never fade. Jesus Christ is the righteous judge who always judges correctly. Paul's judges in Rome were not righteous. If they were, they would have released him. How many times Paul had been tried in one court or another, yet now he faced his last judge, his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When you are ready to face the Lord, you need not fear the judgment of men. The crown of righteousness is God's reward for a faithful and righteous life. And our incentive for faithfulness and holiness is the promise of the Lord's appearing. Because Paul loved his appearing and he looked for it. He lived righteously and he served faithfully. And this is why Paul used the return of Jesus Christ as a basis for his admonitions in this chapter. We're not called to be apostles, yet we can win the same crown that Paul won. If we love Christ's appearing, live in obedience to his will, and do the work he has called us to do, we will be crowned. Hurry and get there is the meaning of the admonition to Timothy in verse 9. Tychicus would take Timothy's place in Ephesus. As Timothy hurried to Rome, he could stop in Tros and get the cloak, books, and parchments. Verse 13. Paul probably left them there in his haste to depart. It's touching to see that in his closing days on earth, Paul wanted his dear, quote, son in the faith, as he called Timothy, at his side. But he was also practical. He needed his cloak for warmth and he wanted his books for study. The books would be scrolls, perhaps of the Old Testament scriptures. And the parchments would be books made from the skins of animals. We don't know what these parchments were, but we are not surprised that a scholar such as Paul wanted material for study and writing. Before he ended the letter, Paul urged Timothy to come before winter in verse 21 because all the ships would be in port during the winter since it would be too dangerous for sailing. If Timothy waited too long, he would miss his opportunity to travel to Paul and then it would be too late. Why should Timothy be diligent and faithful? Look at verse 10 which gives part of the answer. Some in Paul's circle were not faithful, and he could not depend on them. Demas is named only three times in the New Testament, yet these three citations tell a sad story of failure. 
Paul listed Demas along with Mark and Luke as one of his fellow laborers. Then he is simply called Demas. Here in um, verse 10, it is Demas hath forsaken me, he says. Paul gave the reason. Demas loved this present world. He had, as a believer, quote, tasted the powers of the world to come. See Hebrews 6, verse 5. But he preferred this present evil world. Galatians 1, verse 4. In his Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan pictured Demas as the keeper of a silver mine at the hill, Lucre. Perhaps it was the love of money that enticed Demas back into the world. It must have broken Paul's heart to see Demas fail so shamefully. Yet it can happen. It can happen to any believer. And perhaps this explains why Paul had so much to say about riches in his pastoral letters. Then another reason why Paul wanted Timothy in Rome was that his next hearing was coming up and only Luke was with him. The believers in Rome and in Ephesus who could have stood with Paul had failed him. See verse 16. But Paul knew that Timothy would not fail him. And of course, the Lord had not failed Paul either. Verse 17. The Lord had promised to stay with Paul, and he had kept his promise. And when Paul had been discouraged in Corinth, the Lord came to him and he encouraged him. See Acts 18, verses 9 through 11. After he had been arrested in Jerusalem, Paul again was visited by the Lord and encouraged in Acts 23:11. During that terrible storm when Paul was on board ship, the Lord had again given him strength and given him courage. And now in that horrible Roman prison, Paul again experienced the strengthening presence of the Lord who had promised. He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee in Hebrews 13, 5. But, but note that Paul's concern was not for his own safety or even for his own comfort. It was the preaching of the word so that Gentiles might be saved. It was Paul's special calling to minister to the Gentiles. And you can see Ephesians chapter 3 for that. And he was not ashamed of the gospel, even in the great city of Rome. What a man. His friends forsake him, and he prays that God will forgive them. His enemies try him, and he looks for opportunities to tell them how to be saved. What a difference it makes when the Holy Spirit controls your life. In 2 Timothy 4.17, it says, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Who or what is this lion? It cannot mean a literal lion because Paul was a Roman citizen. And if convicted, he could not be thrown to the lions. Instead, he would be executed by being beheaded. So was the lion Emperor Nero, maybe? Probably not. If he had been delivered from Nero, then this meant he was acquitted. Yet he had only had a preliminary first hearing. The lion is a symbol of Satan. First Peter 
5 verse 8. Perhaps Paul was referring to some scheme of the devil to defeat him and hinder the work of the gospel to be, quote, saved from the lion's mouth was a proverbial saying that meant to be delivered from great danger. See Psalms 22, 21. But for a Christian, there are things even more dangerous than suffering and death. Sin, for example. This is what Paul had in mind, verse 18. He was confident that the Lord would deliver him from every evil work and take him to the heavenly kingdom. Paul's greatest fear was not of death. It was that he might deny his Lord or do something else that would disgrace God's name. Paul was certain that the time had come for his permanent departure. See verse 6. He wanted to end his life race well and be free from any disobedience. It is heartening to see how many people are named in the closing part of this last letter Paul wrote. I believe that there are at least 100 different men and women named in Acts and in Paul's letters as a part of his circle of friends and fellow laborers. Paul could not do the job by himself. It is a great man who enlists others to help get the job done and who lets them share in the greatness of the work. I'm going to repeat that because that is so profound and so many times other Christians are left out of of helping do the work when they're very capable and very willing also, but a few want to just kind of take over and do it. So let me say that again. It's a great man who enlists others to help get the job done and who lets them share in the greatness of the work. Luke, as we see in 2 Timothy 4.11, was the beloved physician who traveled with Paul in Colossians 4.14. He's the author of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Note that we, sections in Acts, quote we, the eyewitness reports of Dr. Luke. Paul probably dictated this letter to Luke. We know nothing about him, nor do we really need to know. He was another faithful laborer who assisted Paul in an hour of great need. And then Titus in verse 10 was Paul's close associate and along with Timothy, a trusted troubleshooter. Paul had left Titus in Crete to straighten out the problems in the churches there, as we see in Titus 1 verse 5. As we study Paul's letter to Titus, we get better acquainted with this choice servant of God. Titus had met Paul at Nicopolis during that period between Paul's arrests Now Paul had summoned him to Rome and sent him to Dalmatia, our modern Yugoslavia. Mark was a cousin of Barnabas, Paul's first partner in missionary service. His mother was a noted Christian in Jerusalem. Unfortunately, John Mark failed on that first missionary journey in Acts 13. Paul refused to take Mark on the second trip, and this led to 
uh, rather falling out between Paul and Barnabas, as we see in Acts chapter 15. However, Paul now admitted that John Mark was a valuable worker, and he wanted Mark with him in Rome. How good it is to know that one failure in Christian service need not make one's whole life a failure. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Tychicus was a believer from the province of Asia who willingly accompanied Paul and probably ministered as a personal servant to the apostle. He was with Paul during his first imprisonment. Paul sent Tychicus to Crete to relieve Titus. Now he was sending him to Ephesus to relieve Timothy. What a blessing it is to have people who can replace others. And then there was Carpus in verse 13, lived at Tros and gave Paul hospitality. Paul must have departed in a hurry because he left his cloak and he left his books behind. However, Carpus was a faithful brother. He would guard them until somebody picked them up to take them to Paul. Even such so-called menial tasks, they are ministries for the Lord. Is Alexander the coppersmith in verse 14 the same Alexander mentioned in 1 Timothy 20? You know, nobody knows, and there is no value in conjecturing. The name was common, but it was possible that this heretic went to Rome to make things difficult for Paul. Satan has his workers too. By the way, Paul's words in verse 14, the Lord reward him according to his works, are not a prayer of judgment, for this would be contrary to Jesus' teachings. See Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 48. The Lord will reward him is a better translation. Now, Priscilla and Aquila in 2 Timothy 4.19 were a husband and a wife team that assisted Paul in many ways. You can find that in Acts 18 and Romans 16 and 1 Corinthians 16. Now they were in Ephesus helping Timothy with his ministry, and it was wonderful when God's people do their work regardless of who their leader is. Onesiphorus in verse 19 and his household we met in 2 Timothy might be the treasurer at Corinth, possibly. As we look at verse or Romans 16, verse 23. And he might be the same man who ministered with Timothy in Macedonia. And then Trophimus in verse 20 from Ephesus was a friend of Tychicus in verse Acts 20, verse 4. And the man whose presence with Paul helped to incite that riot in Jerusalem. He had been serving in Miletus, but now he was ill. Why did Paul not heal him? Apparently, not every sick person is supposed to be miraculously healed. 
The other people mentioned in verse 21 are unknown to us, but certainly not to the Lord. In verse 22, grace be with you was Paul's personal farewell, used at the end of his letters as a trademark that the letters was not, were not a forgery. The Bible does not record the final days of Paul. Tradition tells us that he was found guilty and sentenced to die. He was probably taken outside the city and beheaded. But Timothy and the other devoted believers carried on the work. As John Wesley used to say, God buries his workmen, but his work goes on. You and I must be faithful so that if the Lord does not return soon, future generations future generations may hear the gospel and have the opportunity to be saved.